I'm going to tell you a story this morning, a story that's familiar to you, but it leads into the message of this morning, which is the power of a pure heart. We talked about the power of the personal gospel. We've talked about the power of a pure faith. This morning, we want to talk about the power of a pure heart. Once upon a time, there was, there was a God in company with his perfect creation. Theirs was a close and tender bond. Theirs was constant companionship in a beautiful world, in a beautiful garden that went by the name of Eden. And daily, they held concourse. They held conversation with each other face to face, man and his maker, his maker enjoying the fruit of his creativity and man enjoying the, the ultimate purpose of his creation, which was indeed fellowship with the almighty God. But you know, something happened and um, the story goes downhill in a rapid, at a rapid pace. It goes downhill all the way to our day, and, and here we find ourselves wandering to and fro in the blackness of night, separated from the God whom we were created to have fellowship with. Now we see in a glass dimly, surrounded by, by the darkness of night, empty, wrapped in fear, not sure why, deceived as to our present state. I'll tell you why. It's really quite simple. Humanity was created to be a companion of God, a friend of God, to hold face-to-face -face conversation with God. But here we are, and not only is the reality of face-to-face -face communication with God so far removed, but it, it, it's almost not even the ideal anymore. I mean, I don't, I, don't know that we, I don't know that we pause daily to remember, this is where we come from, and this is where we're going. But into this dismal and dark situation, there comes a king, a prince of light. And that king came here to bring light, to bring the face of God again before the face of mankind. And he stands on the Mount of the Beatitudes, and he pronounces blessings on these poor children wandering in the dark. Blessed are those who are hungry, they'll be filled. Blessed are those who are thirsty, they'll be satisfied. Blessed are those who seek God, they will find him. But then he says something that absolutely blows my mind and is going to be the, the focus of our message this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray this morning. 
Father in heaven, as we open your word, we are depending on you to open our eyes that we might see the wonderful truths that are therein. Again, this word is power and it is, it is a solemn and fearful responsibility um, to handle it. And yet you have, you've told us to, to investigate, to open our, our hearts to this, world so that you, to this word so that you might transform us. That is what we are seeking this morning. We are seeking to be transformed from the inside out by the power of your word, not because uh, we have any ability or not because any effort on our part will work this transformation, but because your grace is amazing. Help us depend on that fully this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The pure in heart will see God. Purity. What we want to talk about this morning is how it is lost, how it is found, and why does it matter? Why does it matter? There are three, there are many reasons. There are many, uh, we're, we're surrounded. We live in a world surrounded by besetments. But um, at the start this morning, we want to investigate three reasons why we stumble and fall. Three reasons why our hearts are drawn away from the king of the universe and drawn to those things which ultimately destroy us. And these lessons we want to draw from the lives of the strongest men that ever lived. The first of those men was once again a king. And you know the story. The story is re recorded in 2 Samuel uh, and, ver and chapter 11. David the king is, is said there to have sent his, um, his army off to war. And in, at evening one day, he finds himself strutting back and forth on the roof of his house. What he was doing on the roof of his house, I will never know. But there he is, going back and forth on the roof of his house and on the roof of the king's house. If you think logistically, the king's house is probably on top of the hill. It's also probably the tallest. And so from the top of the king's house, he can look over all the city and into the courtyards of all those that live anywhere nearby. And lo, as he's, as he's scanning the city for something interesting, a sight meets his eyes. And instead of averting his gaze, he sits there. He takes it in until reason has been completely dethroned. And he sends his, his servant to find out this lady's name. Oh, well, it must be, it, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it, it must be Bathsheba. Oh, okay, well, send and fetch her. And mistake is, is piled upon mistake until this story, uh, this story becomes a, a drama of not just adultery, but, but a plot of murder. And David the king pays for this mistake for the rest of his life. And the people pay a price. But you know, as I, as I stop and, and question, there's many lessons that we can learn about, about the, the, the progression of the fall. And there's many lessons that we can reap uh, for ourselves about how purity must, be, um, must take the throne in our minds. I mean, for example, if the, if the man had averted his eyes when he first lies out, the story would have ended differently, yes? If the man had not been up on the rooftop, he never would have had to avert his eyes. And you know, if the king had been where he was supposed to be, this story would never have, would have been recorded. Because first, uh, 2 Samuel 
chapter 11 in the first verse records that this was the time of year when the kings went forth to war. What was David doing in Jerusalem? Men and women fall into the grasp of pernicious habits and vices, and often the spark starts with the neglect of some known duty. So we can, we can, you know, we can uphold the, um, a, a beautiful and elevated standard. We can say, we love what is pure. Friends, it's easy to love what is pure. The, 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 the most, uh, the most perverted men in the world love what is pure. Love what is pure. That is not the great, uh, that is not the great achievement. The great achievement is setting our lives in, in a, in a track that will uphold a right standard by setting the by setting the will under the power of God. So first lesson to be learned this morning as, as regards how it is that we stumble, how we fall, how it is that we get into these circumstances in the first place, where lust is in control, where rather than being the, um, rather than the heart being the throne of God, it is the throne of some passion. Never, never, never neglect a known duty. Because the neglect of a known duty can lead to a train of circumstances, the, the, um, the consequences of which will reach far into eternity. So, first one, never neglect a known duty. Second one comes from Judges chapter 14. Story of Samson. Now we're all very familiar with Samson, and he's kind of infamous with all of us. But this man was actually born to be a great, one of the greatest men. But here we come, picking up into the story. Samson is growing up, and as he has done so in, in the, just the chapter previous, the end of the chapter previous, it says that the Spirit of the Lord was already starting to move him in phenomenal ways. And then the beginning of Judges 14 indicates that, that Samson went down to Timnath, and he found a Philistine girl living there. Samson, who's supposed to be the judge, this strong man, he goes down to Timnath. Now, wait a minute. Where is Timnath anyway? What is Timnath anyway? Rewind with me many years, couple centuries, to when the children of Israel are first coming up to the borders of Canaan. Twelve spies go out. Joshua and Caleb are among them. They come back, and all but two of them are totally panicked about you know, the giants in the land and whatnot. Caleb and Joshua are the only ones to say, let's go in and get it. God can do it for us. Well, you know the story. We're not going to go into that here because this is just background to what we're talking about. But God promised when he, when he turned the rest of Israel away into the wilderness for 40 years so that they all could die out there, he said that two people would survive to come back into Canaan. One of them was Caleb and the other one was Joshua. And the two of them, God promised, could have special settlements in Canaan. When they come back 40 years later, Caleb says to Joshua, Look, you, you know what God promised me. Give me Hebron. I want to expel the sons of Anak from there. You know, the giants that had freaked out the Israelites in the first place. So Caleb goes and expels them thence. I love the way the Bible puts that. And he plants himself in Hebron. Joshua, yeah, an 80-year-old man, by the way, okay? 
Love it, love it. Joshua, on the other hand, who was also promised a special spot in Canaan, he goes with his people from battle to battle to battle. What kind of prince and leader is this who can go to the top of a hill and look out and say, sun, stand still, and it does? I would give the world to have heard the tone of his voice when he said that. We're talking about a man here, okay? But after this is over, he waits until all the land has been divided to every single tribe in Ellen White's husband, patriarchs and prophets till the humblest of his people had been served before he presented his claim. And what his claim was, was a little city, a leftover city that no one else in Israel wanted named Timnath Sarah, that which was left. And so this city became the monument to the supreme selfless act of a phenomenally great leader to whom Israel owed everything under God. So now Timnath, the city that is a monument to selfless leadership, to laying one's own pleasure down for the benefit of his people, Samson, who is meant to be a judge and leader just like Joshua was, goes to Timnath and finds a Philistine there. Hey, a Philistine doing in Timnath? In my opinion, that is fighting language. Like, everybody's just looking at me like, you know, calm down. But I'm saying, if a Philistine is in Timnath, and I react to it in the Bible, like sometimes I'm reading the Bible, and I'll just be like, excuse me? What are you doing there? And you know what? Here's the difference. When I react with the excuse me, what are you doing there? I tend to react to the Philistines living in this Timnath the same way. When I look at the Bible and I read that, you know, there's a Philistine living in Timnath, and I'm like, oh, who cares? I tend to react the same way to my own heart. So when I go to the, read the Bible, I want to be upset by the fact that a Philistine girl is hanging out in Timnath. And Samson goes down there, and he's like, decides he likes her. And he goes back to his parents. He's like, there's this girl, this Philistine girl living in Timnath. Get her for me. His parents were like, isn't there someone in all Israel, the entire nation of Israel, you know, millions of us? You can't find one girl you like in Israel? What's his response? She pleaseth me well. That's the only response his parents could get out of him. Today, when our hearts should be monuments to the selfless act of a hero who has defended us, won the promised land for us, and set us free, when our hearts should be Timnath-Sarah to him, what are Philistines doing living there? And what are we doing liking that fact? One of the major pitfalls, Sean said the first one, the neglect of known duty. The second one, the pursuit of pleasure over the pursuit of selfless service. When we choose to think, you know, what's wrong with this? I like this. What, you know, any questions? I like this. We're heading down the wrong path, and it brings us to disaster and misfortune. There's a story of yet another king. David's son, a man who was, who was the greatest, wisest, wealthiest man up to that time, yea, the greatest, wisest, wealthiest man up to this time, a man blessed of God, having grown up in the very shadow of David, the hero of the nation. A man who went to God and said, and when God asked him, what shall I give you? He said, just give me wisdom, because I'm but a child. 
And this man's story starts so well, but then it ends so poorly. What happened? 1 Kings 3 records that, um, that Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh of Egypt and married his daughter. And the record tells us that, that Solomon knew, understood the, the, the potential ill effects of this union. But after all, she was converted. And, you know, he was, I mean, was he not the, the, the strongest, wisest, greatest man in the world? So surely he should be able to, to express a good influence upon this girl. And lo, all would be well with them in times to come. Well, we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story of a king who thought, I can handle this one. My question is, do we know the end of the story when that same idea comes to my mind? Solomon, who said, am I not the great, you know, who might have said in his head, am I not the greatest, wisest king? Am I, am I not the, the richest man that has ever lived? Am I not thoroughly blessed of God? Do, have I not gotten to the very pinnacle of humanity, and do I not hear the very voice of God and see his face? Yeah. And then sometimes I think, well, regardless of all that, we know the end of the story, as I said. And I, what business do I have saying, thinking, I can handle this? Am I not the smartest 26-year-old living in my house? Really? I can handle this. You know what? I have news for you. The, 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 the record has news for us. History has news for us. No, we can't. That's the third pitfall that leads us into, into um, a slippery slide from which it is almost impossible, often almost impossible to escape. I can handle this. Friends, Christ can handle it. But he needs submission. He needs an absolute commitment to a surrender, to a softness before him, to a laying down of my will and saying, no, I can't handle this. I am still but a child, even if God has made me the wisest man in the world. So let's take a lesson. Take a lesson from the wisest man that ever lived that made some of the greatest mistakes of any man that has ever lived. And let us learn from his example, not his, not his failures, but from his victories. So what is wrong? What's the big deal with this anyway? I mean, we read in the beginning, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Of course, that is a tremendous reward. We're always like, we all want to see God, right? If we love him, we truly want to see his face. But what is wrong with it anyway? Because sometimes it seems like in this generation, we have settled for relative morality, where we don't do what those that are around us do, and that makes us holy. Really? Does that make us holy according to the word of God? God is ever reminding me, if you compare yourself to anyone but me, you're Dot, dot, dot. If, you, if we are comparing ourselves to anyone but God, we are heading down, not up. 
what is wrong with this anyway? Numbers 25. We're not going to read the entire chapter. We're going we're to pull the lessons from it. This is the story of when the, the uh, children of Israel came up all the way to the borders of Canaan and something went seriously wrong. Right there. What, what, is, what is wrong with allowing just the smallest amounts of impurity into our life anyway? Why can't we go down those lines, especially if we think it's fine? Numbers 25, we, know, we all know the story how, how, how Balaam had you know, tried to curse the Israelites and it hadn't worked because God had been in control of him. And so then he came back around, we read in Patriarchs and Prophets and talked to Balak and they made this big plan. And pretty soon the Israelites had fallen for all the gals that lived in Midian, okay? Let's look at three things that happened to them. One, when we tamper with this, it prevents us from going up and taking the promised land. Because how can we, after letting our minds go down this track, then go to the word of God and claim some promise with all strength of faith? It cripples us. It cripples our faith. It cripples our view of him and knowing his beneficence and his ability to work for us. Two, it turns our hearts to worship something else more than we love our God. Did the same thing to the Israelites. You can read Numbers 25 and see where I pulled this from. We're just a little bit short on time, so I'm going, moving a little bit quicker. And um, number three, and this I think is the worst, it weakens us to the attacks of our most determined enemy. And what is worse is that we like it. The Midianites were not the friends of the Israelites. They had just been perched on the mountain above the camp trying to curse them, a withering curse so that they would have no power over Midian. And now the people are coming, now the gals are coming into the camp and they're like, hey, we're friends, we're da 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 da. And, and, and now the worst enemy of Israel is scampering into the camp and the Israelites, rather than pulling out the swords, they like it. And the same thing happens to us when the devil comes along and sends these crippling things into our life. We like it because it's pleasurable to us. It blinds us to the attacks of our worst enemy. That's what's most discouraging to the whole thing is often we don't even want to be free. We don't even feel like being free when we know that we should be. We know it's like, ah, this is a good Christian thing. I need to overcome this. We don't even desire it because it's pleasurable to us. Sean's going to talk to us about how we get free and how purity is restored. So there's, um, of course, we've had a seminar here all week on the, on the, the ways to, on overcoming and the ways to, um, to get over addictions. So we're not going to belabor this point, but there is, let me, let me first say, state that purity is, is not nearly so much a set of actions as it is a state of the heart before God. So purity is not something that can be legislated by the will. Okay, I will do this and I will not do this. It is a gift. It is a gift from God. And as such, it can be restored, which is the beautiful thing because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet it is God's desire to bring all back to the place where we see his face. So purity as a, as a ruling principle of the heart is restored when Christ is restored as king. Now, in order for Christ to be restored as king, there can be no, nothing else, nobody else occupying the throne. 
And so the process that we go through is a process of dethroning myself, dethroning my claims to myself, dethroning my right to seek my own pleasure, and throning instead the, the infinite God of the universe who created me for his pleasure, who created me to find pleasure in communion with him. So the process is not a complicated one of step by step by, I mean, obviously there are steps and, and the steps vary depending on, on the bondage that we might be under, but the goal is always the same, enthrone the crucified and risen Christ in my life. And when that has taken place, everything changes. So what are the rewards, the rewards of purity? And I would encourage anyone statistically in a room like this, there are people that are thinking, you know, I like it, I like what you're saying, but I do not know how to get free. And I want to encourage you that there, there is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that there is nothing that is new to man in this room. We have all been there. We've all experienced it, but God can set us free, and there's lots of resources, and I think that, you know, Chad and Fadi had wonderful ones this weekend, and, and, et cetera, but let's, let's not stay where we are because God can set us free. What are the rewards of purity? We're going to talk about rewards of purity on two levels, on a personal level, level and on a global level. Why... Is purity so important? We were never meant to be the plaything of the devil. We were never meant to be something that he could come in and blow up at any time he cared to. When we are free, our eyes are clear to see who our enemies really are. Like it says in Numbers 25, how Phineas jumped up and ran into the tent after those people. And God said, yeah, because you did that, I'm going to stop the plague that was falling on Israel. It opens our eyes to see who our enemies really are. That God's ways are not stuffy and restricted, that our enemies are actually killing us, the same ones that a while ago we thought were our closest and dearest friends. Two, it leaves us free to go in and take the promised land, to take God at his word and to claim all the abundant promise of the gospel. And three, this is coming back from, again from Numbers, it leaves us free to love our God and no one better than him. Loving, loving the Almighty is transformative. It is powerful. It, it works miracles in our lives and in our, and all the lives around us. Henry Varley, he was a famous British revivalist, and he met Dwight Moody when Dwight Moody was just a young man. He befriended him in Dublin, and he said to him one night, as they were talking, he said, Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do in a man that is fully consecrated to him. Later, Moody said that he got on the boat to go back across the Atlantic to the United States, and he said that all the planks of the, the boat seemed to have it engraved on it. He could not get it out of his mind. When he got back to Chicago, it seemed like every brick was blazoned with this message. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man that is fully consecrated to him. And as Moody said later, by God's grace, I aim to be that man. I'm here to say today that God is waiting to do the same thing again. Because we know great people throughout history. We know Martin Luther. We know Dwight Moody. We know so many people whom God changed the world through. But I'm here to say that in as much as we have more knowledge and more light, we have more potential. And God is waiting today to transform the world, to do wonders through men and through women that are committed fully and wholly to him, such as the world has never seen up to this date, Lord Jesus 
let it be us in this room. You know, there's a, there's a deep reason for why we ought to pursue this, this, this gloriously beautiful um, standard, this objective, this, this, this seeing God. And those reasons go far beyond my personal, oh, well, it, it, you know, it empowers me and I, I suddenly become, you know, I become a friend of God. There are ultra-personal reasons, and Natasha has, has touched on some of those, but you know what? There are also huge global implications. And I know we know that, you know, this is like, this is a great controversy and, but I don't think that we understand or realize the true extent of the implications of my choices on an entire universe. You know, it was never God's intent that his children, well, obviously it was never God's intent that, that his children should sin. But it was further not God's intent that his children should, in the, in the process of becoming free from sin, be so preoccupied that, oh, it's just me and my little world and my little sin, and the rest of my life is going to be spent resisting this sin. No, no, no. And, and, and building my little, I mean, this is my ecosystem, right? And this is, I have to be, I have to be the master, and in order to get to heaven, I have to, no. This is not, no wonder Young people with that idea, what? The rest of my life is to be perpetual resistance? Hello? Always decide, no, no, you can't, can't do that and can't do that and can't do that. And it's, all it's going to be is, friends, there is so much more Amen. that God is waiting to do with his children when his children are free to do it. That's the global implications of what it means to see God and to be his hands and feet. I liken it to a soldier and a cross, and a battlefield. The soldier, when he, le when he kneels at the foot of the cross, the first thing God does is, no, a man, when God, when he kneels at the foot of the cross, the first thing God does is commission him as a soldier. You are now a fighter. You are with us. The first battlefield he is called to fight is the battlefield farthest from the principle of the cross of Christ Jesus. It's the selfish heart. And it's way down there in the valley. But you know, it is not God's design that I should spend all day trekking between, every day, trekking between the cross of Christ in the morning and the battlefield down in the valley and climb the weary hill and, and, and kneel at the cross of Christ the next day and then down to the... It is God's intent that the battlefields should grow closer and closer and closer to the foot of the cross, that I should not just fight, but actually win. What a concept. And that my winning should, should prepare me for a greater battlefield until I am no longer just fighting oh, my, my own selfish implications and my own selfish heart and my own impure thoughts. Of course, we will always have impure thoughts to, you know, to deal with in a sense. But it is God's intent that soldiers should grow stronger and stronger and stronger until they're no longer fighting for their lives, until their arms are wrapped around the cross of Christ. And with their free hand, they are warding off legions that don't want to just destroy a life, that are trying to uproot the cross. That is our purpose. That is our purpose. Friends, woe, woe, woe to an earth where the best of God's servants are so preoccupied trying to deal with themselves down in the valley that a million children every day, a million children every 
year in this country go on being exploited in the business of human flesh for sale? That, that 800,000 men, women, and children are trafficked across international borders. That 27 million people are, at this moment, enslaved. And God would do something about it if he had free hands and feet. But this is hard work. These are jobs that God can only entrust to pure hands, to pure hearts. Friends, that is what God is looking for in this generation. Not just children that will come and, and kneel before the cross and say, okay, let me be pure so that I can be happy. Let me be pure so that I can be strong, so we can get out of here. That's my prayer. And I pray that it is your prayer as well. Let's pray as we close. Holy Father, your ways are too high for us. And you know that. And so you reach down and you pick up our little broken bird of a life and you lift it to your very throne. Just because you love. This morning we want to thank you for that first and foremost. And we want our thanks to turn to a love that pours ourselves out, that lays ourselves down, that takes up the banner, the bloodstained banner of Prince Emmanuel and says, thy will be done in earth, even as it is in heaven. I pray that you will raise up an army, an army with clean hands and a pure heart. Not clean hands and a pure heart because, lo, they got it right from the beginning and they never sinned and they never lost anything. Clean hands and a pure heart because they had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And as such, they have become an irresistible force of love on this planet that can stand against the, the tactics, against the, the exercises of an empire of darkness that is dedicated on, on, on the suffering, on bringing suffering to humanity. We want to stand in between the suffering child and the great God who saves. To be the link, as Christ was the link between heaven and humanity. That is our calling, and this morning, that is our goal. Bless us to this end. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.